0: Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 2.
1: Hello, America. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. Hello, those of you in Phoenix listening today. Glad to have you with me. I got a lot to talk about, but before I really talk about the stuff I want to talk about, we got to talk about the news, the real, the important news. We are what? Um, uh, 12 days, I can do some math in my head, even though I went to law school, it doesn't come easy. Like as an aside, you know, my wife, God bless my wife. You put a dollar sign in front of a bunch of numbers and it is remarkable. Like honey, what's 2,385,000 times 12. Uh Honey, what's $2,385,218 times $12? Boom. Answer. It, it, it's, it's remarkable. It, it is a life skill I don't possess. But you put dollar signs and like cash register, money opens. I I I don't get it. But I, I'm occasionally I can do small math in my head. So there are 12 days. 12 days until a government shutdown. That's what all of this is about. It's not about my wife who's awesome. The House Republicans are proposing a deal on Sunday. They proposed it yesterday to temporary fund the government for about six weeks. And they're trying to get it passed. The Senate is not going to go for it. And now they don't know that they can get it done. So there would be a 1% cut. But essentially what it would amount to is an 8% cut to everything other than defense. So the short-term funding bill would keep the government running until October 31st and trigger a 1% cut to current fiscal levels. The 1% cut is an average for the federal budget. The Defense Department and Veteran Affairs would not receive any cuts, while other government agencies would be slashed 8% until the end of October. The effort is meant to garner support from the hard right. You know, they, they never talk about the hard left or the far left. It's always the hard right and the far right. Regardless, let me read you this thread from my buddy Chip Roy, one of the leading conservatives in the House. He writes, in 12 days, funding expires. Ha <laughs> ha, I did the math right. In 12 days, funding expires. The question is what we demand to fund it. My position is that we must get substantive wins on, among other things, the border, Department of Defense wokeness, Department of Justice weaponization, and spending cuts to support funding. On the table is a 30-day funding extension at an 8% cut to non-defense, non-veteran federal bureaucracy, something we've never been able to do. That would include, importantly, an 8% cut to the Department of Justice funding as a first step to stop its abuse along with border security in the form of most of H.R. 2, the Secure the Border Act, and spending riders to implement it. Recall that this bill resulted from our efforts in the spring to accomplish what we've never done, including 2018 uh, with all Republican control, passing a security-only border bill, along with a defense appropriation bill that does not include a Ukraine supplemental, includes riders to defund abortion tourism, trans surgeries, diversity officers, critical race theory, and more, and continuing to fund veterans at current levels. In short, the bill is only 30 days. It would fund troops. It would fund veterans. It would cut federal bureaucracy 8% more than's ever been cut, including a weaponized Department of Justice. It would force strongest border security we've ever had. And it would refocus the military on mission over social engineering. Now, that is uh, Chip Roy essentially coming out for. The proposed 30-day deal, and this is important, it is a 30-day deal. It is not a long-term restructuring. It's just for 30 days to buy time to negotiate with the Senate. The problem is it's already starting to break apart. Matt Gates of Florida says he will not support a 167-page surrender to Joe Biden. Matt Rosendale of Montana calls the plan a continuation of Nancy Pelosi's budget and Joe Biden's policies. Marjorie Taylor Greene on Twitter said, "I'm a no." Eli Crane of Arizona simply said, "No." And then there are objections from Dan Bishop of North Carolina, Corey Mills of Florida, Tim Burchett of Tennessee, Tony Gonzalez of Texas, Andy Ogles of Tennessee, Anna Paulina Luna of Florida. Victoria Spartz of Indiana, Ralph Norman of South Carolina, and others. Here's a problem, too. So Scott Perry, the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, helped negotiate it. Tom Immers is the chair of the, uh, or he's the, the majority whip, used to be the NRCC chair. A lot of these guys feel burned by the debt ceiling deal, and Matt Gaetz just flat-out hates Kevin McCarthy, doesn't want to help him do anything. Ukraine funding is one of the big issues. On the House side, a lot of the Republicans don't want to fund Ukraine. On the on the Senate side, they want to fund Ukraine. Volodymyr Zelensky is headed to Washington, D.C. to try to uh, put a little public pressure on the House and Senate. Now, publicly, a majority of Americans, including a majority of Republicans, still want to fund the Ukraine effort. Uh, The criticisms from the Republican side have more to do with Joe Biden has screwed it all up than that we shouldn't fund them. But a lot of the House Republicans have taken the position that they want not a penny more to go to Ukraine. So that'll be in contention. The Senate will probably win on that. There will be funding for Ukraine. The fact of the matter is Kevin McCarthy wants to fund Ukraine. He just can't be public about it. The problem, however, is How do you herd the catch? You have a four-seat majority. Three Republicans are out of Congress right now. They're under the weather. They're not going to be back, so you can only lose one vote. You're not going to get any Democrats. You have 12 days. What are you going to do? Now, McCarthy, I'm not a fan, but he has impressed me over the past few months to be able to find the votes to, to get things done. You're going to take Matt Gates off the table. This is the problem. You can't get this done this week because you got three Republicans out sick. They're not going to be there this week, uh, so you lose one vote. That's Matt Gates, who's a guaranteed no. Uh, that means you can't pass this. So you're going to have to wait till next week. So you wait until next week, then suddenly you're you're running out of time. You got about five days before the government shuts down. Then you still have to get it past the Senate and to the President. And the Senate doesn't want to do anything the House wants to do. Both sides want to jam the other. Now, this is congressional lingo. What happens is both sides, and it's particularly the Senate that does this. The Senate's better at it than the House because of the way the Senate rules work. Essentially, the Senate passes a package, they wait until the last minute, and then they stick it on the House and say, You got to sign this or else. You got to agree to this or else. It's jamming the houses. They 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 try to jam something into the house force them to agree to it, whether they want to or not, typically sight unseen. Well, the House Republicans, they're not in the mood. And the conservatives in particular are truly not in the mood for a deal. So you have the situation, you've got really principled conservatives like Chip Roy. And Chip Roy's position is this isn't a good deal, but we have 12 days this, for the very first time, cuts government meaningfully in a way we haven't done since, um, what? Uh, not reconciliation, um, sequestration. It's an actual, not a 1% cut to the future growth of government, but a 1% cut to the current government. It preserves defense funding. It takes 8% out of the Department of Defense for woke spending takes 8% out of the Department of Justice for uh, their warfare. The, the Department of Justice just were able to get a conviction against two 70-year-old women who were praying in front of an abortion clinic, claiming they violated access to the abortion clinic. They were standing there praying. They've been convicted in the District of Columbia. They could face 11 years in prison, these 70-year-old women. This money would be taken from the Department of Justice's prosecutions of Trump and uh, prosecutions of pro-lifers, among others. So Chip Roy's like, I I can go along with this. It's it's meaningful cuts for the very first time. It cuts certain things out of the Department of Justice and Defense. It actually funds border security. It would fund most of the Republicans' Border Act that they drafted H.R. 2. And it would only be for 30 days. So you get all that. It would only be for 30 days. We can, in those 30 days, structure something better. I understand why he supports it. I also actually do understand why a number of these others don't support. Now, some of them, it's not a coincidence. Some of them are running for higher office, and they're running as the conservative, so they don't want to vote for anything. But also, I kind of get we had a budget deal with the debt ceiling that sucked. The budget is now growing. The the debt is growing. It's not a good deal. I, I get that. And I get that uh, they're going to continue to fund these departments. They're going to cut some funding. But they're going to continue to exist, and money's fungible. And who's to say that some of these secretaries won't rearrange money? Now, there are budget riders in place in some cases. So, for example, uh, the Department of Defense would no longer be able to fund uh, diversity trading sessions and drag queen story hours. They would be precluded under federal law from spending money on those things. And the government would have to spend money on building a wall and hiring more border agents. That's the one area that would go up in spending They would be required to spend the money to hire border agents and build the wall. But I'm really sympathetic to the guys who just want to shut it down. I'm biased. I like a government shutdown. When the government shuts down, we are safe from the government. Kevin McCarthy says when Republicans shut down the government, they never get good deals afterwards. I don't think he's right on that. In fact, Republicans were able to get sequestration, which was meaningful cuts in 2011, 12, 13 against Barack Obama. The other problem is we got the Trump tax cuts are going to be expiring in, 20, in 2025. Uh, we, we've got other uh, budgets, uh, spending plans by the Republicans that are expiring in 2025. We need to start restructuring to extend those things. And the House Republicans, I don't know if they're going to. So I'm, I'm, I'm really sympathetic to Chip Roy saying these are meaningful cuts. It buys us 30 days to find other cuts. But I kind of think I'd be voting against it if I were in the House of Representatives. I think you still got to do better. And I think having enough House Republicans reluctant matters. However, I say all this, there's one concern you need to understand. What we could see, and we, we really could see this, is moderate Republicans cut a deal with the Democrats and grow the government. That's the one thing that makes me think Chip Roy is probably right on this, that we do get a 1% across the board cut. It amounts to an 8% cut of the federal budget because defense and veterans affairs are left alone, only some of their funding's restricted. So it gets a real world meaningful cut, something we've never done. It buys us 30 days to do a better deal. And most importantly, it would prevent the moderate Republicans from having any incentive to cut a deal with the Democrats and force something through the House that most Republicans vote against that would grow government. If we want to cut government, if we're conservatives, we believe in limited government, we want to cut government, this might be the deal you got to get behind. Because otherwise, the moderates will cut a deal with the Democrats, and those moderates and those Democrats, they're not going to cut the government, they're going to grow it. I am a small businessman. The company that I run for my radio show, it's a small business. I've got employees. I don't have HR. You may be in that situation, and you may really need HR. Well... You may want to talk to Bambi. When running a business, your employees can create all sorts of interesting situations and they could get you in trouble. What happens when two employees are squabbling? One of them smells bad all the time. What do you do? How do you navigate the rules? With Bambi, you get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 a month. They're available by phone, email, real-time chat. Onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance. Your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. Let Bambi handle your employees for you. Their HR autopilot automates important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Listen, you want... US based HR managers who give you experience, expertise, a personal touch you need to make it seem like they're a part of your team. They could cost 80 grand a year, but Bambi starts at $99 a month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Go to Bambi.com right now, type in Eric Erickson under podcast when you sign up. It'll help you, it'll help your company grow, it'll help you keep peace of mind. It's spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, bam, B-E-E.com, Bambi.com, type in Eric Erickson. Welcome, it's Eric Erickson here. The phone number, 877-973-7425, should you wish to be on the program. <laughs> The call screener's phone ringer was muted, so he didn't hear you if you called. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't be a Monday without firing somebody and rehiring them by the end of the day, I guess. Usually it's Philip. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. I, I, this story, I, I may need to spend more time on it than this segment. However, California is trying to convince truck drivers, 18 wheelers, tractor trailers, whatever you call them, depending on where you are in the nation, that they should go electric. That's right. They should go electric. So David gorilla Jr. got behind the wheel of an electric semi, took it for a spin The southern San Diego-based trucker liked the way it looked, he liked the way it drove, he was impressed. But at this point, buying an electric truck makes no sense for Gorilla, a driver and small business owner with two trucks and one employee. The cost of an electric truck, even with federal tax incentives, is out of reach. Even if he could afford one, there are few places for a driver like him to charge an electric truck, and the limited range he can drive on a single charge a couple hundred miles wouldn't work on his daily trips to the port of Long Beach. Round trip from San Diego, it's 234 miles. That means on one trip, somewhere coming back south to San Diego, got to find a charging station just to get enough power to get back home. And the two loads he's currently running per day, that becomes absolutely impossible with an electric truck. Well, the California Air Resources Board, or CARB, is going to start forcing companies to add only electric vehicles in January As part of a statewide mandate on greenhouse gases and climate change, the regulations are targeting larger fleets, those with 50 or more trucks, or that have $50 million or more in gross annual revenue. Starting in January, those businesses will only be allowed to add zero emission trucks to their fleets. And by 2035, all trucks entering California seaports and intermodal rail yards have to be zero emission vehicles. Y'all know this isn't going to work, right? This is just California screwing it up for the rest of us. At some point, we're going to need a law at the federal level that California can't keep trying to do these state regulations that mess everybody else up. You know, California, one of the upsides of it is they're about to uh, spark an excess bacon supply nationwide. That's right. Uh, California is regulating pork producers and so pork producers have started pulling their products out of California, which means more bacon for the rest of us. Uh, California going to start having major problems with cascading effects unless Congress does something, which they're not going to do. So other states are going to have to start mandating uh, that you got to have diesel trucks. Then wouldn't that be great? It would. AFP has thoughts on all of this, Americans for Prosperity. They've actually got thoughts on how California is trying to use their state regulatory power to control other states. And they've got proposals for states and for the federal government to push back, among other things. They're reigniting the American dream. They're getting rid of deregulation. They're fighting nationwide against Bidenomics, and they want you on their team. They train you up to be a really great activist. They train you how to be persuasive to your neighbors and local legislators and to members of Congress. And then they build up their army of activists, and they fight the regulatory state. If you want to join them, and I highly recommend that you do, Go to americansforprosperity.org slash Eric today, americansforprosperity.org slash E-R-I-C-K. You sign up with Americans for Prosperity, you become a better, more effective conservative activist, and on top of all of that, they get you involved at the state level to make real change for free markets and free people and limited government. Americansforprosperity.org slash Eric. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Should you wish to be a part of the program, always happy to have you. In fact, let's jump to the phones. I'm going to go first to Paul. Welcome to the show, Paul. How are you? I'm doing fine, Eric. How are you today? I'm great. What's going on? Hey, man, I've got the solution for the whole budget thing. All right. Now, stay with me here for a second. Um, I let them shut down the government and, uh, well, reserve funding for the military, Social Security, and for Postal Service and uh, there will be no retroactive pay, I bet that'd bring them to the table, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, probably so. <laughs> probably so. You, you know, the, the thing is, though, they, they never ever, they're, they're not willing to do uh, no retroactive pay. It's never been done. And it's always a theory because you don't get paid. Congress has to pass a piece of legislation to retroactively pay government employees, but they always have. Uh, Now, the UPS is – or UPS – the post office is somewhat different because uh, it's based on the fees collected by stamps, so they stay in operation even if the government shuts down because they're funded uh, that way. But everybody else, unless they've got – unless they've got fees that come in to cover them, they they stop. Question is, do we want them to work or not? And and I – like, the military has to keep working – because the military, by law, they're there to, to uh, protect and defend us, and so the military keeps working, uh, whether they get paid or not, which is understandable, but also garbage. And that's one thing that Democrats like to hold over Republicans' heads: is that you're forcing uh, these people to, um, to to work without pay. So, how do we proceed? I I'm kind of with Chip on this one. He's got a good head on his shoulders. We get a real-world cut in government, not cut in the in the growth of government, but actual cut, which we've never gotten. Across-the-board cut, we've never gotten that. And it buys us 30 days to come up with a new deal. And the House Republicans only have four-vote margin, so you got to get a good deal if you want them all on board. The alternative is, and this is the real danger, if you don't cut the deal— you could very likely see the moderate Republicans cut out the conservatives and do an even worse deal. And that, my friends, would be a bad, bad thing. Now, I want to move on. I want to talk about a difficult subject. Uh, And I I want to step away from politics for a little bit. There are some political implications here. But I mentioned at the beginning of the show and I've written this weekend about a lot of people who believe the country is in spiritual moral decline. There's something happening in the West. There's there's something happening generally. As society becomes post-Christian, paganism rears its head again. Uh, We don't have to get into the theological aspects of it. We don't have to turn this into a show about religion just to say that something unhealthy in society is happening. And one of those is the rise of euthanasia services. Now, I need to step back for a moment on this one, and, and let me personalize this one. My wife, as most of you know, has stage four lung cancer. The tumors are kept from growing by a pill she takes every day, but we're mindful that this pill is not supposed to work indefinitely. She was given two years to live seven years ago. Seven years later, she's still here. She's working on a strongman competition. She's looking to pull a UPS truck at a competition in a few weeks. She's awesome. She's brave. She's bold, and the cancer has thus far been kept at bay. When she was a little girl in first grade, she watched her mother die of breast cancer. And then she watched her mother's sister die of lung cancer. And my wife has kind of always been a proponent of, I don't want my family to have to see me suffer in the way I saw my mom suffer, and has been open to the idea at a point where there's no return and the inevitable is upon us not to just wait to die, but to, well, a little extra morphine here or there, maybe let her pass away. I don't like to think about it, but I got to talk about it with you guys to deal with the, the, the story here that I think we need to talk about that we're not thinking about that no one's really covering. I will tell you, and I can't keep my theological views out of this, you need to know my views and they're easy for me to say because I'm not the one suffering. I think, and I know from the experiences of others, that when someone has a terminal illness, watching them suffer and seeing what they go through brings a level of closure so that the sadness at their death is mitigated because the experience has now come to a conclusion. And I only know one person who lost someone through euthanasia. and that family to this day regrets it mourns the loss of their relative who chose that path because the person seems still relatively healthy they they never got to the point of the suffering of the soul where they were ready to let go they they were not ready to let go they had no say in the matter and they resent it still There's a ministry in suffering. Now, I, I'm I'm not, when I say ministry, I know people's bells and whistles go off. I'm, I'm not thinking faith, Christianity, theology here. There, there's a ministry in suffering. When you are suffering, you're putting other people's lives in perspective for them that, you know, my life's not so bad. I tell the story all the time, and I I, I genuinely, I am truly not making this up. This is a true story. This guy confronted me at a a Books-A-Million. I was doing a book signing and uh, was telling me how he planned to commit suicide. He was sitting in his car, his gun was loaded, and he was about to eat a bullet. And he heard me talking about my wife's and my health struggles and me nearly dying and my wife having cancer and all the problems we've had, and and he literally thought to himself, well, hell, my life's not so bad, and he did not commit suicide. He was going through a struggle. His fiance or his girlfriend, who he wanted to marry him, uh, he found out he had cancer. He wanted to fight cancer with her and get married, and it turns out she was pregnant with his best friend's baby, and he decided that he was just going to eat a bullet, and he didn't. I was open and transparent with my suffering and my family's struggles and health struggles in such a way that he thought, you know my life's really not that bad I can deal with this and he did and he's healthy he he fought cancer he recovered he's in remission um and I, I just I, I the the thing here is I think that uh, we too often in our society we don't like pain we don't like suffering and sometimes, your willingness to go through that suffering is a ministry to others. I think about my friend, Tim Keller. He struggled with pancreatic cancer. And, you know, the, 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 the thing that I feel guilty about and to some degree is that Tim would call and check on not just me, plenty of other people. And here he is dying with pancreatic cancer, and he wants to make sure we're okay. I'm like, dude, you're the one dying what can we do for you? Nothing. How can I pray for you? Oh, you can't. I want to pray for you. It's it, it just there, there was a ministry there. I raise all that to bring you to this story by Alexander Raken at National Review on the rise, not of health care, but of death care. And it has spilled over into a number of American states and, and Canada as well. And there's more and more disturbing Uh, information coming out about euthanasia care in countries around the world. And I need you to listen to some of this. Next question is from Debbie, the moderator of a discussion on medical decision-making capacity, said to her fellow physicians, how would folks interpret someone who's lost the capacity with a waiver in place, is now delirious, shouting, pulling their arm away, as one tries to insert the IV to provide MAID, or medical assistance in dying. Preceding this panel, a training seminar for the Canadian Association of MAID Assessors and Providers had informed participants the criminal law on medical assistance in dying is strict. How strict? On the same day that a patient enters into an optional written agreement with only one of his or her two MAID assessors, Even if it's unsigned without any witnesses and with no family members having been informed, the clinician can administer the lethal injection without asking for the final consent of the patient. You got that? On the same day that a patient enters into an optional written agreement with only one of the two people they're supposed to see, even if it's unsigned, has no witnesses, has no family members being informed, the clinician can kill the person. The asterisk in the law is that the agreement is in place only as long as the patient does not demonstrate by words, sounds, or gestures refusal or resistance to the administration. If the demonstration is involuntary and made in response to contact, the death of the patient may still proceed. But consent is a spectrum, and patients with delirium can flicker between capacity and no capacity. Patients can change their minds about dying at the hand of the physician or nurse. The hypothetical question was posed to the panel, in effect, whether there's a loophole to get around criminal law. Ellen Wiebe is one of Canada's most prolific maid providers, again, medical assistance and dying providers, and a leader in that community. On request, she has hastened the deaths of at least 400 people, including some cases in which other assessors believe were illegal, and she offered an answer. I'm guessing I would bring in one of the other providers, you know, palliative care or whatever, and get them sedated but what would you say? In other words, if they're resisting, if the patient is resisting, sedate them so they can't resist. CAMAP, the self-styled clinical subject matter experts on MAID in Canada, is in the process of releasing a curriculum. The first rule of medicine is to do no harm. The second rule in countries that have legalized death care is that the first rule doesn't matter anymore. Every state in Australia, in Canada, Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain, France, and in 10 states across the United States, medical assistance in dying has been cropping up. At the core of death care is the presumption that safeguards work and that consent, the most important safeguard, prevents death care from slipping into rampant homicide. In Belgium last year, after a lethal injection failed to kill a 36-year-old woman with terminal cancer, the presiding physician smothered her with a pillow. In New Zealand and Canada, suicidal patients seeking medical care for suicide prevention were instead prompted to consider assisted suicide. In the Netherlands, a similar story of a physician sedating her patient into accepting euthanasia led to the first criminal trial of a euthanasia physician. She was acquitted. The judges said we believe that given the deeply demented condition of the patient, the doctor did not need to verify her wish for euthanasia, even though the patient repeatedly attempted to fight off the physician. Across jurisdictions that legalized death care, often what started as a choice, is now the first or only option. We're now no longer dealing with an exceptional treatment, but treatment that's very frequent, says Michel Bureau. Uh, he's the head of the Commission sur la soigne de fin de vie, the Commission on the End of Life Care. In every jurisdiction that medical assistance in dying has been implemented, the number of deaths at the hand of physicians is ballooning as safeguards are rescinding. Nearly a decade ago, the rapid increase of hastened deaths led a Dutch regulator in charge of oversight to plead for other countries to not do it. In California, the number of assisted suicides last year jumped 63%. In Canada, the number of deaths by euthanasia is on track to increase 13-fold in seven years. Belgium seen a 12-fold increase. Switzerland, which legalized in 1941, the number of suicides has doubled every five years since 1999. And increasingly, stories are trickling out of individuals who at the last minute change their mind and the doctors sedate them and kill them. We're going to be dealing with this. There's a culture of death upon us. The legalization of abortion until the moment of birth is mainstream within the Democratic Party and increasingly euthanasia is as well. And it's hard because you're dealing with many people who are terminally ill, but just consider this. In Canada now, when someone is struggling with suicide, when a person in Canada is struggling with suicidal thoughts in Canada, the majority of the patients struggling with suicidal thoughts are now not sent to a therapist to help them deal with the thoughts, but are sent to a maid provider to engage in clinical assisted suicide. Those of you who deal with depression and suicidal thoughts, can I just ask you a question? We'll leave the rest of the audience out of this. What do you think about that? What do you think about that? Because it's happening and it's gonna happen here too. Now, while we're dealing with the collapse of civilization around us and the stock market and all the turmoil, I gotta tell you, Swiss America Well, you can't save society, but it might be able to help you save your portfolio. If your money is in precious metals, you can ease the ebbs and flows of the stock market, just some. Uh, Precious metals hold their value. Gold and silver tend to hold their value. And Swiss America is the leader in precious metals in this country for the last 40 years. Right now, you can get the Swiss America's Walking Liberty half dollars from the U.S. Mint. So the Walking Liberty half dollar silver coin is $13.50. It's a great low price. For you, your kids, your grandkids, limit 250 of them for purchase. While supplies laughed, they are gorgeous coins. It's a great way to get into precious metal investing. And Swiss America can help you comply with IRA and 401k rules. To get this deal, you call 800-289-2646. 800-289-2646. You ask for, you mention my name. You can text them at 800-289-2646 as well. Just text ERIC. Message and data rates apply or go to SwissAmerica.com slash Eric, SwissAmerica.com slash Eric. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across America. I'm delighted to have you guys with me. And we got a lot more to talk about when we come back, including the continued strike uh, by the United Auto Workers starting to have economic um impacts around the country as tier one, two and three providers for the auto manufacturers begin to lay off and and their demands are just not grounded in the world.